Let's bow our heads together, please. Lord God, we just come before you now. And uh, Lord, help us to worship you with a joyful, joyful, we adore you type of spirit. That is why we're here, Lord, uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, help us to do it with purpose. Help us to do it with intent. Help us to do it with joy. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, once again... We have our little blue uh, connection card, so please uh, fill that out, especially if you're with us for the first or second time. We'd love to know you're worshiping with us. And, of course, everybody has a prayer card. If you wish to fill those out, pastor and staff, would be, it'd be our privilege to pray for you, so put those in the uh, offering plate later, okay? And um, so is, is, this, is this the last of the men's knock on the head? Okay, so, so we, we're still talking about men loving their wives, and uh, then I think we go on to, to children, and we're all praying they listen, right? Uh, and, and so uh, we're going to, again, the, our standard is God's love, right? Men love your wife as Christ loved the church, so our standard is God's love. So we're going to sing this hymn once again, The Love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue and pain can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care, God gave his
we're singing a lot of old hymns today, actually. The next one we're going to sing is uh, one you maybe you're not as familiar with as some of the others, To the Work. Yes, Labor Day, you're welcome. To the Work. Uh, Protestant work ethic, right? And so we're going to, that sort of fits with Labor Day. But it also fits, uh, as Brother Philip was saying in the office the other day, uh, we husbands got a lot of work to do. And we really do. And, that's, and this song reminds us of that. We've got to get busy to the work of obeying God, amen, and uh, in our families and in every aspect of our lives. So let's sing this together. and praying, laboring till the master comes. Let's, uh, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer for our offering today. Lord, we just come before you now. May we be people who would do just this very thing. Uh, watch for you, put all of our hope in you, and yes, labor for you each and every day because we are being obedient servants of the one true God. Labor till the master comes. Lord, may this uh, offering just honor and glorify you, and it may it, it cause men and women, boys and girls, to come to Jesus because of what's given and what it represents today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, as we uh, pass those plates, let me tell you a little bit about the song that we're about to sing. Uh, Brother Philip actually referenced this last week, the last verse of uh, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. Um, Bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, I think was his quote. Well, we're going to focus on the second verse. The phrase, here I raise my Ebenezer, found in 1 Samuel, okay? Uh, second verse of come thou found of every blessing. So in chapters 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel, there's a series of battles between the Israelites and the Philistines. Well, chapter 7, 10, God provides a miraculous victory. Samuel sets up a great stone and raised it as a memorial, and he raised it as he called it, I'll give it the name Ebenezer, or stone of help saying, till now the Lord has helped us. So whenever the Israelites looked at that stone, they would remember how God helped them. And we need that every day of our lives, don't we? We don't have physical stones maybe out in the yard, but in our mind's eye, we've got memorials where we know if it weren't for God, we wouldn't have made it. And, and we need to look at those and be reminded that today we'll make it because he's always been faithful in the past. That tomorrow we'll make it because he's always been faithful in the past. He's faithful today. Amen. And so let's sing this song with just renewed vigor uh, as we think about that. Come thou fount of every blessing. Come thou Sung by flaming 
to grace we are great debtors. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Brother Philip has been preaching about husbands and wives. He's reminded us that uh, that relationship is a picture of Christ and his church. Amen. And this uh, reminds us, this song reminds us just of that. Let's sing together.
God, we just come before you now. And we ask your blessing upon this message. Lord, in so much as the marriage bond is shows the bond between you and your bride, the church. Lord, we pray that husbands and wives would renew commitments today to live in such a way, to relate in such a way that they would obey you and seek to honor you in everything that they do in that relationship. And in so doing, Lord, show the world that you love your church. Lord, we pray for families today. We pray for heartache today. We pray for, again, renewed commitments. Lord, we pray for your name to be great. We pray for your glory to be known. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Do y'all know what this is? This, there were two of these presented, one to me and one to my wife. This is to put on the end of your toothpaste tube. <laughs> when there's disharmony in the, in the marital relationship, when one or the other despises the tube being grabbed like this and the other one pushes, I'm the one that pushes up from the bottom. This is to stop marital disharmony. You know, you kind of, all right. We didn't get one of those. We got two of them, right, from two precious lady saints in our church. And I'm going to keep that right there to know when I get home, I can put that on the toothpaste tube. Actually, Natalie bought her own toothpaste this week and said, this is mine in here. I said, yes, ma'am. I understand. <clears throat> on Wednesday night, we, we have our prayer meeting and just, just thought about how awesome it was to hear our people praying for our marriages. Uh, special prayers lifted up to the Lord, and it was such a blessing to my heart. Praying for marriages <clears throat> that may be struggling. And I'm thankful that not only are we preaching the word, but we're praying about it. We're wanting to, as it were, pray the word of God uh, into our lives, because that's the best way to pray. We pray what the scripture says to us. Okay, as David has well said so far, Guys, we need twice the correction as the, as the ladies. Why? Because at least grammatically there are over 100 words written to the men and only 40-something written to the women. So we need to work on Labor Day. Well, we know as we look across the landscape of the U.S., everyone knows that marriages are in trouble. We all know that problems abound. I think, now track with me, and I think the text is going to bring us to this conclusion today. I think one of the main problems is we don't want to be happy enough. Now be careful with the thoughts. We're not talking about happy-go-lucky, pie in the sky, by and by. We often are far too easily pleased. We suffer from what may be called the good enough syndrome. Not good enough, but good enough. Right? The good enough syndrome. In other words, based on the verses that we're going to study today, I want to make a proposal. Many of our problems in marriage would be solved if only we would pursue joy in our spouse and in particular in Christ with more energy, more effort, and more diligence. Do I have your attention? Men, I hope I do. And of course... You ladies know I'm preaching on your behalf to the men, right? I hope you're listening too. But I challenge you to follow Paul's argument about beautifying, preserving, and joy that we ought to have. For instance, we often fail to have joy even in our Savior. We're, we're missing out on that. It seems to be more of the mundane, going through the ritualistic whatever, religiosity, instead of having joy in Christ, which we should have as his people. And it also should be in our marriages as well. So, remember, we talked about loving, our husbands are to love their wives unconditionally, sacrificially. Today, we're going to pick up one more uh, part of loving your wives purposefully. 
And then we'll finish out by loving your wife affectionately. So verse 25, you ready? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We talked about this is an exclusive love. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify, sanctifying love, her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And verse 27, purposefully, he loves her. We're going to call this a beautifying and preserving love. Hear it. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now check this out. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And here's the intermingling of Christ and his love for his church, together with husband and wife. Listen to how he says this, because we are members of his body. All right? Husbands are to love their wives purposefully. And we started this by talking about this exclusive love and sanctifying love. So the construction and the grammar here suggests that the clause of beginning in verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself, is still connected with the sanctifying of the church, that he is to present her gloriously. So in most, it most likely is the case that he's presenting the church as Christ's bride would allude again to the Jewish custom of presenting a bride. So immediately you have to think about this in future tense because everything so far has been present, immediacy, right? But in this particular case, it's speaking of something that is in the future. So I'm putting those two things together. Husbands, love your wives. And again, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. There's this intermingling of Christ's love for the church and what his goal is for the church. But also what husbands ought to do in their love for their wives and what the ultimate goal should be. So I put those two words together. Preserving and beautifying love. What does this mean? Well, the presentation spoken of in verse 27 is future. What do we call it when we study end time events what's the theological term eschatology I wanted to say that so that someone else would say it other than me okay so this is eschatological this is eschatology this is something that's going to happen in the future so when Paul mentions this he's employing a description of something that is future in other words it's not right now not this moment the second but something that's going to happen in the future the idea of presenting for himself his bride on that day in all of her splendor is not right now. It's something that's going to happen in the future. And for a believer, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb where the betrothal is finally consummated in a union between Christ and his bride. That's you and me, folks. This is future because this is future. It, it requires a certain kind of love for us to get to that place. We're like that now, aren't we? We've been justified. We're being sanctified. One day we'll be glorified. We're in the between time on the face of the earth as God's people. So, this preserving love is what keeps you till that day. Aren't you thankful that when God says he saves you with eternal life, that it's nothing short of eternity? It's a preserving love. However, this love is more than just preserving he actually has a love for us that is beautifying the bride in the process. Are y'all tracking? I know it's, let's labor today in the word. You ready? Right? Monday's Labor Day, okay? Let's labor in the word. All right, Ezekiel, we were there last week and we talked about this prenuptial bath, cleansing for the bride. But notice how it continues in verse 10. I'm in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 10. You should have that mark from last week. Preserving and beautifying. All right, husbands, this is what the Lord says you are to do and how you are to love your wives. Notice verse 10. 
I clothed you also with embroidered cloth, and I shod you with fine linen. I wrapped you in fine linen, and I covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments, and put bracelets on your wrists, and a chain on your neck, and I put a ring in your nose, don't get any ideas, and earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. Notice the wording. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord our God. Do you see how Paul was just saturated with the Old Testament? And you can't help but see splendor and beautiful and adorned and ornaments. And this is the kind of language that Paul is employing here. It's the kind of love that preserves the bride. And, I'm sure of, I, I, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's preserving 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the kind of preserving love that so works in your heart as a child of God that you will not fall away from the Lord. Are y'all hearing this? I, I know I'm intermingling this because both things are true. Christ's preserving love for you as his church and the husband's preserving love for his wife. So, one of my favorite verses is Hebrews 10:14. Do you know it? For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. To God be the glory. So the love of God works the fear of God into us in such a way that we will not turn away from Christ the Lord. This is the kind of love that comes to us and it keeps safe and secure. This love is at work in you, as the song says, when we're prone to leave the God that we love. It's also a kind of love that doesn't just get us to the end. It's the kind of love that results in the church being presented in all of its glory and splendor. Are we growing old? Without wrinkle, without spot, or any other such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Those two negatives, without blemish, without wrinkle, is beckoning our minds back to that young bride who has no defect whatsoever, no blemish. And, and don't get me wrong, that's metaphorical language, but it's reminding us that this bride is going to be purified and exceedingly beautiful. That's what it's reminding us of. This is the consummation for the church when Christ will beautify us. John Stott does a great job in this in addressing the reality. He says, on earth, speaking of the church, she is often in rags and tatters. She is stained and ugly and despised and persecuted. But one day she will be seen for what she really is, nothing less than the bride of Christ, free of spot and wrinkle or any other disfigurement. She will be holy and without without blemish, beautiful in glory. It's the love of Jesus that gets us to that day, folks. It's the love of Christ that gets the church to that state. How many of you will remember Twyla Paris's excellent wedding song, How Beautiful? How beautiful. There's a line in that song that says, How beautiful the radiant bride who waits for her groom with his light in her eyes. I like that. And just the song that Brother David led our church in reminds us of that. Now, husbands, if you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church, then we must be committed to loving our wives with a preserving and beautifying love. This means we are to love her with a steady and enduring love, here it is, that is actually transforming her. Now, I know that's kind of deep theologically, but it's the kind of love that we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So it's the kind of love. We love her when she's really attractive and beautiful to us. And 
We love her when she may not be so beautiful and attractive to us. And I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about toothpaste <laughs> coming up from the bottom, right? This is the kind of love that endures in both kinds of scenarios. It's the kind of love that endures in both kinds of scenarios. It's the kind of love that endures when you're on that hot date. But it's also that kind of love that endures when you're in that heated emotional uh, disharmony that comes with two sinners living under the same roof, right? This is the kind of love that is steady through thick and thin, the way Jesus loves you, the way he keeps you. This is the kind of love that we love her in such a way that it's freeing to her. I like how John Stott says this. He says this love works in her in such a way that it ends up freeing her to develop, to develop her potential under God and so become more completely herself. So to love her with this kind of love demands that we don't stifle her. We don't suffocate her. We do not manipulate her. It means that you love her in such a way that under the Lord God, the love that you're pouring into her is transforming her into what she will be one day in glory. That's the goal. So, this is not some kind of unbiblical macho nonsense. We shouldn't be ashamed to tell our wives that we love her. Not like the coach that time that said, I told her at the wedding or, uh, marriage altar one time 25 years ago and I thought that was good enough. I said it one time, but that's that macho-ness. That's the unbiblical aspect of it. So, do not be ashamed to tell her that you love her. Don't be ashamed to show her that you love her. One day, she will be before the Lord God and adorned as his bride. So there's a loveliness. Think about this. You with me? There's a loveliness to the woman that's in the twilight of her years when she's been loved like this. You know it and I know it. I've witnessed it in this church with these little couples still holding hands at nearly 90 years old. One couple I asked that about holding hands. They said, preacher, we, look, we do love each other, but we're holding hands because it's a necessity. Right? <laughs> But folks, there's something to be said about a husband loving his wife all those years. She just gets more radiant. And you can tell that she's been loved by a man who knows what it's like to be loved by God. That's what you see in them. So, this verse can get you thinking. Ladies, your beauty is a result of being loved like this text says by your husband. Right? Love her in such a way that she's preserved. Beautified. She's increasingly becoming what she one day will be. Men, do we have a high calling? Better believe it. It's to love your bride as Christ loved us. It takes work, prayer, self-control. It takes humility. It takes dying to self. We are sinful creatures, right? So it takes more and more grace for this to take place. And I want you to know there's a source for this accompanying grace, isn't it? It's found right here in this text. It is Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's what, that's what does it. Brothers, if you want to increasingly love your wife like Paul says we should, there is a source. We've got to stay close to the cross. We have to breathe gospel air. You know it and I know it. When you move away from the cross and the fact that we're crucified with Christ every single day, right? If we move away from that and we move away from the gospel then we're not going to be Christ-centered, gospel-saturated men, and we're going to have a hard time loving our wives like we should. So it will not happen if you never open your Bible. It will not happen if you're a Christless man. It will not happen if you have no love for Jesus. It will not happen if you do not have growing affections for the Lord of glory. I know what you're thinking. I'm, I'm 60 years old. Been down that road, preacher. I'm good. No. You should love Jesus more tomorrow than you do today. It's a loving, growing relationship sanctifyingly in your own life just like it, it ought to be in regard to our wives. So we need to stay close to the cross, breathe gospel air, let the power of the gospel grip you in such a way that you act toward your spouse. When we do this, God will be glorified in our marriages and our wife will be more sanctified. That's what the text says, doesn't it? All right, ready for number two? Oh, 
I'm doing good. Here it is. Last point. Husbands are to love their wives affectionately. So remember, purposefully was exclusive, sanctifying, beautifying, and preserving. Aren't you thankful that Christ preserves us all the way to the end? Right? But then, here's the, here's the final part. Husbands are to love their wives affectionately. Notice verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And he's going to give you a parenthetical explanation of what that is. Are you ready for it? Your mind's wondering, what does it mean for a husband to love his own body? What are you thinking that? Here's what it says. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So the best word I can think of is affectionately. Loving her affectionately. So Paul gives this moral obligation. Do you see it staring you in the face, guys? In the same way husbands should love their wives. Are y'all excited about all these imperatives? Some of you are saying, I'd like to go back to Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 when it was all indicatives, what God has done. But now he's saying, that's what I've done. Now it's time for you to work. Right? It's time for you to do something. I feel the oughtness. Right? Okay, JV? Husbands ought to, that's a good word, isn't it? You ought to love your wives. Now, folks, that's a moral obligation that we are to love our wives. But please don't see this only as a duty. Okay? Was Christ's love for us unconditional and sacrificial? We may even say it this way. He came down according to the will of his Father to complete all the Father had asked him to do. Was Jesus duty bound to obey his Father? Hello? Well, yes. I've come to fulfill that. However... I want to remind you that no one took his life. He laid it down willingly. I want to remind you of Hebrews 12 too, That kind of love. It was the joy. Are you listening? He did it for the joy that was set before him. It's one thing to think about duty and bearing the sins of his people on the tree of Calvary. But think about this. He did so for the joy that was set before him. It's a Hebrews 12, 2 type love. It's an Isaiah 53, 11 type love. You ever read that? It's a suffering servant passage. Isaiah beginning in chapter 52, I think 13, and going all the way down through 53, 11. Here's what it says. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see his labor and be satisfied. What is it talking about? He knew full well what he was doing when he went to Calvary. And he's going to see the travail of his soul, and he's going to be satisfied. So, when we encounter husbands love your wives, don't simply think about the duty that's bound to you or the right thing to do. This is not honoring to your wife when you just say, I'm obeying you, honey. I'm not obeying, wrong word. I am loving you, hon, because the Bible says I have to. That's not the way. That's dishonoring to your wife, and it's also dishonoring to Christ. We ought to love him out of joy for who he is. So, this moral command does two things, though. Husbands ought to love their wives. You know what it does? If you've been married for a while, you know this. It crushes selfishness. You ought to love your wives. And it places love in its proper context. And the love is not just duty-bound. It is for the joy that was set before him. John Piper says... Selfishness seeks its own private happiness at the expense of others. Love seeks its happiness in the happiness of the one that is loved. There is a major difference in those two. And that's being weaved profoundly throughout this text of Scripture, isn't it? Hear it again. Selfishness seeks its own private happiness at the expense of others. Love seeks its happiness in the happiness of the beloved. So... Again, look at this phrase, in the same way. It's linking it back to the previous statement. The basic idea, Christ loved the church in the same manner husbands ought to love their wives. And there's this repetition of agape, agapao, to love. It emphasizes a moral obligation, but it's not just a moral obligation. Okay? Now, did anybody feel disappointed when you read verse 28? In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Anybody feel a little bit 
like some degradation took place in the, in the text. The lofty example of Christ loving his church was so selfless. It was self-emptying. It was unbelievable love that he would come down from glory to love us in such a way that he would die for us. Even obedience on the cross. Does anybody feel like, whoa, man, we've stepped way down from that lofty picture when it says husbands as they love their own bodies. Anybody feel that way a little bit? Anybody? Well, there are scholars who feel like that that's just, they deny the word of God, of course, number one, but they think it's unexpected, it's too demeaning, because we've moved from Christ's love to self-love in a sense, is what they see. However, you should not see this as a degradation in the argument, from the self-sacrificial love of Jesus down to an analogy of an old rusty husband looking in the mirror thinking, Ooh, I'm good. That's not what's going on here. This is far greater in the call to love than our narcissistic self-love that permeates our culture. I want to tell you folks, it's everywhere. It's even in the church. This kind of love even describes how Christ loved you. Are you thinking? There was an ultimate reason why Christ loved you. And that was for his own glory. Awake! To the reality that God is most committed to his own glory. And he's got a right to do it because he's God. And in our society, we are so focused on personal salvation that we've made our God less than the God of salvation. We've, we're missing it, folks. And even in this text, when it compares your love for self, it's bringing about the fact that God loves his own glory more than anything. And in loving us, he's loving himself. In redeeming you, he's loving himself. He's got every right to do that. He's God. I know we can't wrap our minds around this, but think about this. There's another facet of this. Y'all having fun? When he says he loves his own body, let your mind go back to Genesis chapter 2. What happened there? It was not good for man to be alone. I am so glad God said that. Aren't you? I mean, every animal is parading by an Adam with an intellect like you would never imagine. I consider Philip Schufer with an incredible intellect. I do. This guy spit out these languages. I'm like, how's he learn all that stuff? Your intellect. You're pointing at your wife. Good guy. You're smart. Right, Elsie? But just think about somebody with that kind of intellect given by God before the fall and not messed up could give a name to every animal that walked by. Unbelievable. But there was not a helper suitable for him. But God Almighty, anesthetics, right? Performs the first surgery and out of his side he forms woman. And Adam wakes up and he says, boy howdy! Amen? <laughs> Man, you don't look like a horse. You really don't. You, whatever God's done, this is unbelievable. And Adam breaks into poetry. The gardener who worked before the fall, by the way, right? The gardener becomes the poet. You're now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Ish because she is taken out of Isha. And Moses adds this, the two shall become one flesh. So Adam looks at his helper who is corresponding to him. She's taken out of his body. She is one with him in origin. And then, as it were, God pronounces that first marital bliss and union by saying the two shall become one flesh. Folks, are you getting this? When you're loving your wife, you're loving one flesh. You're loving yourself. That's, that's the meaning here, not a degradation kind of way. So Paul when he says own bodies, he is saying it in the one flesh context of Christian marriage. Because God has made us to be husband and wife. It's a way of making implications of a high standard in a concrete and practical way. Look, look at this one flesh principle. And ultimately it goes back to the fact that you're, one, you're in Christ Jesus. But also this marital picture. So, let's take us a step forward. What is the second great commandment? You know, Jesus said this. The first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second one is likened to it. Love your neighbor as your... If you're called by God to love your neighbor 
how much more so should you love one flesh principle, your wife? Right? So this is bringing this out for us to think about. In all circumstances with your wife, love her as a fulfillment. Not only of the one flesh principle, but what about the second commandment? How about the golden rule? Which most people misconstrue what that means. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know what you think that means? If you don't slap me upside of my head, I'm not going to slap you upside of yours. We take it as defensive. It's applicational. It's actional. Do unto others. Not as long as you don't smack me, I'm not going to smack you. That's not what that means. The golden rule means do something the way you would like to be treated. So how much more should we love our wives when they are one flesh? When they're better, they're in a much different position than our neighbor? And this just the golden rule. Think about... Additionally, it also sets up this comment about the Lord loving his body, the church. All of this has to be brought in with that parenthetical explanation. Okay, verse 29, let's move on before I run out of time. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. If we're wondering what this looks like, then there's the explanation. This shows that Paul's point is not merely to discuss a man's own body, right? But to signify how natural it is for the husband to love his wife. Why? The husband is one with her. Now, think about this. This is not, one of the, this is not what you hear with one of the 1,000 books in Barnes and Noble that teach us how to love ourselves. That's not what he's saying here. It's not a self-love warrant like a narcissistic society would say. Again, our society would say, learn to love yourself first. And if you don't love to learn to love yourself first, there's no way you could possibly ever love anyone else. Well, that's antithetical to what Christian love is. Okay, make sure you understand that. We are today inundated with the cult of self. It's all around, right? The greatest sin no longer seems to be the failure to honor God, but rather the greatest sin in our culture seems to be the failure to esteem ourselves. Something's happened, folks. So people twist the scriptures in so many ways to seek to prove that we're commanded to love ourselves. And unless you do that, you cannot properly love someone else. That's bogus. First, nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to love ourselves. In both those cases, in, in Ephesians 5 and in the Word of God, when it says love your neighbor as yourself, both of those love yourself is assumed, not, not commanded. Right? It's assumed we no more must be commanded to love ourselves than be commanded to breathe. And we know this is true. So you are a human being and therefore you will love yourself. General observation. Okay? According to this text. Second, the contemporary emphasis on self-love teaches us to put ourselves first in reality. Until you love number one, you'll never be able to do anything else toward anybody else. Folks, that's just antithetical. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. Let others... Esteem others higher than yourself. That's what the Bible says. So to love self first flies in the face of the Christian concept of love that always thinks more of the other person and the other person's interests. Jesus is telling the, uh, the Pharisees who are listening what love for your neighbor looks like. And what's the example? In Luke chapter 10. Y'all know your Bibles, don't you? It's the Good Samaritan, Right? He gives this analogy, this example. You know, self-love in the Bible does not put self first. What does the good Samaritan do? Well, he walks by the fallen Jew and he doesn't say to himself, I can't help him until I've learned to love myself. And thus you just walk right by. If I haven't achieved self-esteem and self-love in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, there's no way that I can help someone else. Is that what it says? What did he do? What does loving your neighbor look like, folks? He endangered himself. He spent time. He spent money and energy. And then he promised, if I owe you anything else for this man, I'll come back and pay it later. That's esteeming others higher than yourself. So our cultural belief that before you do any good, you have to love self first is a big lie. And it's, and it's contrary to Christian love. And finally, thirdly, the cultural emphasis falls really on self-esteem. And what we do for ourselves and how we think about ourselves. So the biblical assumption of self-love ends up being spelled out 
in Ephesians 5.29. Here it is again. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it. So Paul's description of self-love is that you don't hate your own flesh. But you take care of it. Are you following me? It's not standing in front of a mirror four times a day saying you are lovely. You are wonderful and you are worth it. Here's what self-love looks like. Are you ready? Are you going to eat today? That's what self-love looks like. Any of you men thinking about not eating? Not me. I'm hungry right now. The more I think about it, the more I want to eat. Right? How about this? Are you going to put on your coat before you go outside, but it's cold? I'm just going to tell you like it is. If it's real cold outside, I'm putting on my coat. Thus, I care for my wife. Honey, you're not going to wear a coat. Right? Folks, this is pretty simple when you think about it. It's taking care of oneself because you value self. Don't you want good be done to you? Don't you want good men to be done to you? Do you want good to be done to you by God? Have you ever prayed to the Lord? God, go ahead and treat me like Job. I don't know what y'all think about that. But I know what I think about that. The Lord may do it. He may. But I'm not sitting here begging for it. Have you ever prayed the Lord, go ahead, sift me like you did Job? Go ahead. No, I don't think so. Do you like to be treated well by others? Are you understand what it means to love yourself? Lord, I'm such a worm. So today I deserve for everyone to hate me and be mean to me. I don't think you think like that. We would rather be nourished and cherished. So as a general principle, Paul says no one ever hated his own flesh. There's a universal desire for all of us to avoid pain and to enjoy happiness. Isn't there? I know there's some peculiar people out there that don't act like that. But as a general rule, you ever heard of Pascal? He was a French theologian, philosopher, and mathematician. And here's what he said. All men seek happiness, and this is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they tend to this end. It's the cause for some going to war and others avoiding it. It's the same desire in both attended with different views. This will never take... This, the will, never takes this least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. He's got a point, doesn't he? It's a universal desire that says, I want to avoid pain and I want to enjoy happiness. I don't think any of you would actually choose, uh, or say it this way, no one chooses that which produces the maximum amount of pain and maximum amount of suffering for the maximum amount of misery, for the maximum amount of time possible. Does anybody do that? Paul says, if that is how you feel about yourself, then love your wife like that. That's how we're supposed to love them. You don't hate yourself. I've no, never walked around in the church, and I've never seen a man sticking a needle in his eye. That's not, that's not what we do, right? You treat yourself well. You nourish and cherish your own body and take care of yourself. You value it. Again, this affection should be given toward your spouse. That's the meaning of the text. So do you see the affection here? The two words are overlapping. Nourishing and cherishing. They, they overlap in their meaning from the text. This is true whether it's a spouse or a child. Paul will use the same exact word in chapter 6 verse 4 coming up in a few weeks about bringing up our children. He's going to use this reference in the book of Thessalonians about nourishing and taking care of the church as a pastor. In reference to Christ's church, Hoffner writes, Jesus Christ, how did he nourish and cherish the church? He redeemed it. Are you all listening? I'm about to land the plane. He redeemed it. He sealed it. He empowered it. He brought it into one body. He filled it with his fullness. He gifted it. He loved it. And he sanctified it. That's how he loved the church. So he's not only the ruler of the church. That's where the church gets its sustenance from. It's from the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you're loving her, you're loving yourself. How many of you are here this morning, men, you want to make yourself miserable? Do you understand how joy comes out of this? How in the world would we want to mistreat ourselves? 
because she's one flesh. Is anybody getting this? I mean, do we want to intentionally make our lives miserable? Are we not understanding that even in your Christian pilgrimage, our love for Christ has to do more than just get us by? We have joy in the Lord because we've been bought by Him, filled by Him, given His Spirit, knowing full well that He's preserving us and He's making us more like Jesus every day. He's beautifying us. That's what this life should look like. So, do we enjoy and relish marital disharmony? Think about this. When things aren't going well with your spouse, and I realize that some of you have perfect marriages. I get it. Okay? I understand that nothing ever comes between you and your spouse. And if so, after church, tell me I want to rub your head because I want it to rub off on me. Right? You know how that disharmony feels, don't you? It's tense. And do you ever say, man, this is great. I'm so glad we planned this disharmony. Let's just keep this going for the next couple of hours. No, folks, there's something in the pit of your stomach if you're married that's unlike any other feeling you can ever have with anyone else because she's one flesh with you. You know, it happens with church members sometimes. And you love people, and there's disharmony, and it causes conflict, and you feel it in the pit of your stomach. Folks, just magnify that when it comes to your spouse. And you know this. Don't look at me so spiritual. You know this disunity raises, this disharmony raises the bar. You feel it down in the pit of your stomach. Does anybody enjoy that? I sure don't. Nobody does. As a matter of fact, if there's anything, talking about eating, that can make a man stop eating, it's disharmony with his wife. If there's anything that will make a man not sleep, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? To mess up those two things in a man's life, sleeping and eating. But I'm telling you, folks, disharmony will do that. Stop and think about this. It will revolutionize your life. Disharmony in marriage moves to the pit of your stomach. Why do you feel this way? Because we're not at peace. Listen, you're not at peace with yourself. She's one flesh. Are y'all getting this? Amen. Yes. I mean, you're doing this to yourself. It's disharmony. So, God forbid that you have children that go astray. And if you do, that will break your heart. But that does not compare to the kind of pain that happens when a husband and a wife have a rift. I'm just telling you. So, would you be willing to bring that pain upon yourself? Would you be willing to make yourself suffer? It's not wrong to desire to avoid conflict and seek for joy in your marriage. It's not wrong, folks. As a matter of fact, it's Christ-honoring love when you do that. Joy. So, I would remind you that to be cruel and kind and loving toward your wife is a form of self-hatred. Is that the way you treat your own body? Is that the way you value yourself? So, it's a contradiction to our very nature. So, I need to wrap this up, don't I? Could it be that the problem with our marriages is not that our desires are too strong, it's that our desires for joy and happiness in our marriages is too weak? Could that be the problem? I think so, folks. It really can be the problem at times. This is ultimately rooted in Christ's love for the church. Think about this. Christ Jesus nourishes and cherishes his body, the church, because... She's dear to him, and as the Bible would remind us, she is the apple of his eye. Check this out quickly. Look at it. Let your eyes see the text. Because we are members of his body. How does it, don't we sense this as being a part of the body of Christ? I think that's how simplistic this is. There's been a lot of ink spilt over what that means, for we are members of his body. I think it's pretty obvious. We belong to the church. We know what it's like as members of the body to be loved by Christ. How much more so should our wives, who are members of us, and one flesh, be loved by us? hope that makes sense to you. So, I love Psalm 23. It compels our Lord God as his bride toward us to prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Her cup overflows. He pursues her with covenant loyalty all the days of her life. And she's got a promise 
that she will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's how he loves his people. Paul says, love your wife like that. We can imagine this because verse 3, we're members of his body. We know he does. So love your wife like that. To God be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us, Lord. Help me. We have work to do. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us with an unconditional, sacrificial, sanctifying, exclusive, selfless love to lay down your life for your church, your bride. We're so thankful for that, Lord God. Help us as men. Lord, I, I know I've preached hard because I am a man. I know my responsibility from the word and I fall so short. Lord, help us. Lord, not just to see it in the text, but begin to act upon it. Not to be hearers only, but doers of the word. Lord, as your children, we long for the day with no more sin. No more struggle. The Bible says in 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Beloved, it does not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Lord, help us. The Bible says, and every man that has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. Lord, you've saved us, but one of these days, you're going to perfect us in beautifying and preserving love. That's true of our salvation. You're not finished with us yet. We're a work in progress. Same is true of our marriages. Help us in this preserving and beautifying love because one day our wives will stand in glory. And they'll be without sin. And they'll be perfected by your love once forever. God, help us be committed to that end as husbands. Not that they love you in spite of us, but they love you because of us. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's repeat from earlier today the love of God. Let's sing together. Let's stand. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care, God gave his son to and pardon from his sin. Oh, love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. I make a proposal to you. Seek for joy in the Lord in your marriage. Not just enduring. It is to be durative. I get it. Right? There's an oughtness to the love you should have for your spouse. But there's an awesome joy in marriage when it's done God's way. We ought to celebrate that. Not be ashamed of heterosexual one man for one woman for a lifetime. God made them male and female no matter what the world says. I challenge you kids, even at school, when you're asked about pronouns, just write it in the margin. Genesis 127. God made them male and female. And it's the Lord God that brings the man and the woman together in marital bliss. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Amen? There's going to be those toothpaste tubes. But the fact remains, we ought to pursue joy. The same joy we have in Christ ought to be the same joy we have in our relationships. Amen? Especially with our spouse. To God be the glory. You're going to labor tomorrow? On Monday? Well, we got work to do because that spouse is not leaving, right? Amen? She'll be in the home, and I pray that we do this for the glory of Jesus because one of these days we shall see him face to face. Amen? Amen. We look forward to that. God bless you. Hey, just real quick before we go. Uh, so the new stage has been uh, uh, extended, and carpet is coming probably in two or three weeks. 
And so we'll have a little bit of a facelift in here. So to God be the glory. And uh, as it would, uh, what a great song we have to end with. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Let's sing together. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun of 